Good morning. On Friday, I sent you all an email, as I commonly do, and in that message, I invited people to share with me children's stories or poems or songs that have been formative in your life. And one of you shared with me a poem that uh, I remember from my own childhood. It's by A.A. Milne, and a part of it reads this way. Halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. I'm not at the bottom, I'm not at the top, so this is the stair where I always stop. And I loved it that the person sent that uh, poem because it, uh, it ha- carried with it a meaning that was explained to me in the message, and the meaning was completely different than my own interpretation. This person shared with me that that poem means for them something about leadership, that in their life they have found themselves not to be always at the very front of things or at the back, but serving somewhere in the middle and doing their part. And that it also makes them comfortable being a middle-of-the-road person who tries to honor opinions on both sides of many issues. I love that interpretation, and it's completely different than my own. I've always understood that poem to be about mindfulness and being in the moment of things. I see children as a great reminder that most of us adults are always trying to get up to the top of the stairs or down to the bottom. We're always trying to get to church on time or to work on time and saying things like, get off that stair and get your shoes on now. But children remind us that there is value, and all of our spiritual traditions remind us that there is value in embracing the moment that you have been given the stair upon which you are seated now. And so as we enter into our time of reflection on Scripture this morning, I wanted to uh, share that with you as a reminder that I think of our time of worship as a stair upon which we have the opportunity to be seated each week and at the beginning of the week to ask what God may tell us. And like the message I received from one of you, I love it when the message that was received is different than what we may have expected and causes us to think. And rather than ever telling you what to think, I hope that the sermons that you hear here and the worship experience that you receive on this stair is one that causes you to think in ways that you might not have expected, just as I was invited this week to think in a different way. Let us pray. God, we are thankful for your guidance of us in our lives and for surprising us with your truth. And in this hour, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the uh, children's story I intended to tell you about this morning is a different one. It's called The Greedy Python. 
And it's about a giant snake with a monstrous appetite that gobbled up all of the animals from mouse to elephant and then coughed them up again because it felt too sick. And the story ends with these rhymes. But he hadn't learned a single thing. His greed was quite astonishing. He saw his own tail long and curved and thought that lunch was being served. He closed his jaws on his own rear, then swallowed hard and disappeared. <laughs> Theologians and ministers are cursed by not being able to read anything, even a children's story, without thinking about what it suggests about God. And a theologian named Miroslav Wolf wrote about this story once in an article. He heard his wife reading the greedy python to their little boy. The story doesn't sound so bad, does it? The snake doesn't learn his lesson and so gets what he deserves. It seems like a harmless enough lesson about greed and more generally about evil and its consequences. The problem, wrote Miroslav Volf, is in the story's implied message that given enough time, evil implodes on itself and self-destructs. And that idea is contrary to the witness of the Bible, and it is practically incorrect. Left on its own, evil tends to build on itself. Evil continues until some good force stands up in opposition to it. Bullies keep bullying until someone hits them back. Repressive governments and leaders continue to be repressive until they are opposed. Individuals and corporations, when they act in greed, will bend or break the rules until they are caught and punished. Slumlords and drug dealers oppress communities until someone stands up to them. It's nice to think that evil will swallow its own tail like a greedy python. We like this idea because it lets everyone else off the hook. But the fact is that life rarely works out that way. Evil must be opposed. The Bible has been bearing witness to this idea for a long time. Take your pick of well-known Bible stories. Moses and the Pharaoh in Egypt. David and Goliath. The Bible is full of stories of the need for evil to be opposed by someone who stands for the good. And not only is this message revealed in stories, but in the poetry of the Bible, in songs about how God calls people into service in the world. In ancient Israel, people wrote poems and songs intended to glorify and inspire the struggle against evil. Many of them appear in the books of poetry in the Bible, especially in the book of the prophet Isaiah, where we heard one of them this morning. These are called servant songs. And in them we hear God's intention for good in the world, brought about by those who serve God, and the struggle that will come with achieving it. Listen again to the words of this servant song we read this morning. The servant who God has called sings, 
The Lord called me before I was born, while I was in my mother's womb. He named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. These kinds of songs were popular enough that sometimes they were misused. Kings and emperors seeking to place themselves in a position of divine inspiration would use this language to prop up their rule of the people. In today's situations, you can think about elite politicians who might use a Springsteen song to show their connectedness to the common people. Ancient kings in Israel quoted or wrote songs like these to convince the people that they were on the side of goodness and justice. The original uses of these songs, though, were more pure. They were about hope for a savior who would champion the needs of the powerless. For Jews, they prefigure the coming of a hoped-for Messiah. And with the birth of Jesus, Christians came to believe that they were about our servant leader who had finally arrived. When most of us think about Jesus, we think about things he said that sound gentle and kind. Words like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And quoting the Old Testament, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. There are other things Jesus said that don't sound so nice or that we perhaps wish he had not said. Educated Presbyterian types like to explain these things away with historical context or an error in translation. One of those things is Jesus' declaration in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. It sounds an awful lot like that line from Isaiah, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is a good reminder that all of Jesus' sayings, the pretty ones and the harsh ones, they all come from the same Jesus, and He was speaking in the tradition of these servant songs. He spoke for good, and he did so in a way that indicates we must actively oppose evil. Because in order to fully grant the kingdom of God to the poor, or to truly love one's neighbor, often requires an active and personal resistance to evil. And not just the hope that someone else will do it or that evil, if ignored long enough, will swallow its own tail. Christians believe that the struggle against evil and injustice takes on its fullest and purest form in the life of Jesus. And we believe that 
because he continues in this tradition of the servant songs. He's one who responds to evil not by waiting for it to consume itself, but by actively resisting it. This example has been taken up by plenty of followers of Jesus, and this week we remember most significantly Dr. King. Servanthood, of course, is not always an easy road, and you may be familiar with this story about Dr. King. It comes from the Montgomery bus boycott. The boycott did not accomplish its objective overnight. It went on for 381 days. The boycott deeply divided the Montgomery, Alabama community. It produced major problems for working people all over the city, people who had to carpool and walk in order to get to work or the store or do all kinds of routine things in their life for 381 days. Not only much of the white community, but some black church pastors had misgivings about King and challenged his leadership of the movement. The opposition had him thrown into jail for a minor traffic offense in order to soil his reputation. The papers ran stories falsely accusing King of using boycott funds for his own personal use. And for King, the story of this opposition culminated on a Friday night, January 27, 1956, when the phone rang and on another end... The voice said, leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. Alone in his kitchen, staring into an untouched cup of coffee in utter despair in the middle of the night, King prayed to God. And as he would later tell the story, At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And God will be at your side forever. Three days later, Dr. King's home was bombed. Everyone survived the bombing, and the bus boycott continued, and eventually was the first great success of the civil rights movement. Sometimes when I talk a lot about grand figures of history, not only Jesus, but kings in Israel and people like Dr. King in modern times, I fear that I risk losing the connection with regular folks like you and me. What does this have to do with the rest of us? Well, I could have told any number of stories today about Dr. King, but I chose this one because it happened so early in his career, in the very first days of the civil rights movement. This was long before the March on Washington, and King was a relatively unknown Christian like you or me, one who understood that God calls people to serve and to make a difference in the lives of people who suffer. 
And any one of us might receive that call. The story of Jesus and the prophets of the Old Testament and of anyone else who followed in the path of servanthood. Their stories are meant to inspire us to think a little bit bigger about our own potential to do good. Most of us are pretty good at struggling with our own potential, with our calling as it applies to ourselves, our career ambition or our earning power, how much influence we have in the world around us or what people might say about us when we are gone, what we're doing to make our lives more happy. This passage serves as a reminder that those individual goals do not need to be the limit of what our lives can mean. Scripture calls each and every one of us and always has to service to others in ways that impact people that you know and the entire community that surrounds you. Much of the significance and meaning that every one of us seeks for our lives comes from the active pursuit of goodness on behalf of someone else and by the refusal to accept the evil that we see. The beauty of Dr. King's lessons to us is that responding to evil with action does not need to be violent and it does not need to be vengeful. On the day his home was bombed, an angry crowd of King's supporters gathered outside his home, and King mounted the front porch and said to them, We must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop because God is with this movement. Go home with this glorious faith and radiant assurance. Go home with this glorious faith and radiant assurance. Responding to evil does not always lead to suffering, and no one hopes that it does. Dr. King did not hope for his home to be bombed. But his story and the sacrifices he made in the name of his faith remind us that Christian life is not just intended to meet our personal spiritual needs and that the meaning of, that so many of us seek often comes in service to others. And it is seldom, if ever, found by hiding in the safest places we can find. Dr. King told his followers to return home that day because that day they were angry. But he told them to go home with glorious faith and radiant assurance. That is, faith to reach out beyond ourselves, an assurance that our struggles will have meaning. And it comes from the hope, hope that God has created each one of us to be a servant who has a song to sing.